Hello, welcome ventures to the Travel Log, podcast in which I, Stephen Hopper, my pronouns are he, him, and Lily Lavin, she, her. I want to welcome everyone to a special episode of the Travel Log. We'll be taking a detour from our normal format on the location lore of Faerun. Today we are talking to a novelist, and I'll let him introduce himself. Uh, this is Ken Liu. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, so for folks who have no idea who I am, my name is Ken Liu. I am um, an epic fantasy novelist, a short story writer, and a futurist. So I'm the author of The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories, a short story collection, uh, The Dandelion Dynasty, which is an epic fantasy series in which engineers are the heroes, not wizards. The fourth book just came out, Speaking Bones. And then finally, um, as a futurist, I travel around speaking to universities, governments, corporations, and I try to help people who work with technology in various ways to try to imagine and talk about technology in a more compelling way. And that's what I'm hoping to discuss with Stephen Lilly today. Yeah, it's it's really exciting to talk about this because, as you said, D&D uh, and Faerun as a world, and it does really kind of lean on that wizards run the show, uh, magic users run the show. But there is still engineers, there's still technologists, there's a whole artificial class these days in D&D that often is kind of given the side to it all? I think it's a little bit in with the artificer and Faerun, specifically the world we're in, when you say it's given a side, it's kind of just there. And that's kind of just the end of it. There's there's Gond and there's automatons, but then it's kind of just there. And being able to integrate it more thoroughly and better rather than it just being this kind of side thought, I think would be a really nice uh you know, thought to put into it, how to integrate it a bit better. Yeah. So how would you, and then also a lot of people play D&D in their own world. So yeah, I'm interested to hear kind of your, mm-hmm. yeah, your, your thoughts on, on this and kind of like, so everyone can understand what you're, what you're proposing with this, because I'm also very curious to hear. Let me start out just by presenting to you my basic thesis and my basic, my core, um, message, if you will, to folks who are trying to talk about technology. I think a lot of times the way we think about technology is very skewed and shaped by the way we think about technology as a result of the media and and, uh, the way it's talked about in modern life. We tend to think technology means computer chips and rocket engines and things of that sort. But that's a very, very narrow slice of technology, and it makes it hard to really fully appreciate what technology is and how it can make your uh, world building and your your characterization and, and just generally your the way you see the world and interact with the world richer. So I always tell folks, you know, whether they're gamers or uh, writers or journalists or entrepreneurs, I say, okay, all right, to sort of give you a sense of it, the way I want to do it is to take you on a, on a mental experiment, if you will, and, and to get you to stop thinking about technology as a matter of feeds and speeds, right? So think about it this way. Technology actually comes from two Greek roots, techni and logia. Techni comes from a much older Indo-European root, which means to weave. It's the root of words like text and textiles, and it means skill, art, craft. 
Logia comes from also an older Indo-European root, lex, which means to collect, to gather. So it's the root of words like logs and collect and lexes. Logs are literally things you gather and collect. And, and when you're speaking, you're, you're picking out words. You're, you're gathering words into some form. So technology actually, if you go down to the roots, can be reframed and re-understood as a discourse about skill, a discourse about art. Um, that's the way I want people to think about it. Technology is not just computer chips or rocket engines. They are instances of technology. But the better way to think about technology is a discourse about skill. So let me give you a few examples. And I'm going to try to draw the examples from not modern times, but from one of the earliest world builders, if you will, Herodotus, the Greek historian who invented essentially the art um, and the, the, the genre of history. So, you know, in the time of Herodotus, he traveled around the known world for, for him and wrote about these very beautiful, beautiful accounts of his travels for his audience. And so, in some ways, you know, for, for folks who didn't get to go to Egypt or Mesopotamia or the Black Sea, Herodotus was constructing a world they had never seen for by them. Uh, Herodotus was a world builder trying to let them see essentially what is for them a fantasy world. And so with that in mind, it's really interesting to read Herodotus and see how he does it. And, and you realize he does it by essentially focusing on the technology of the Egyptians and his technology understood in the broadest sense. So he starts out by having this discussion with the priests of Egypt, and, and he recounts it in his, uh, in his book. And he says, you know, the Egyptians explained to me, they, they told me that they were the first people to divide time. Uh, the year into 12 pieces. They were the first people to come up with the names for the gods and to find them in the stars. They were the first people to observe the stars and notice their patterns and to record the course of the year and the flooding and the re receding of the waters of the Nile. They tell me that the names of the gods that we have as Hellenes actually came from the Egyptians. They tell me that they were the first people to do all of these things. What's amazing to me is that here the Egyptians in his story are trying to explain to him who they were. And they were focused on technology because a calendar is a technology. Astronomy is a technology. The way to divide up time into something that has names, has divisions, has form and shape, that's a form of technology. So this is the first thing I want people to, to understand. Technology doesn't just mean artifacts you build. It also means a way for you to map the world into your mind and map the mind into the world. When the Egyptians gave the gods names, they were naming unseen, impossible to understand forces. When the Egyptians gave the names to the month and actually divided up the year into month and, and explained when the year starts and when it ends, that's giving shape to time. And when the Egyptians started mapping out the world, as did the Greeks, the very mapping of the world, the very naming of features in the geographical physical world, that's also a form of technology. In fact, that's the most important kind of technology. This is the first point I want to make to people, which is technology is about the mind made tangible. It's about putting your mind out there into the world and 
taking the world back into your mind. It's that conversation, that discourse between the subject and the world. That discourse itself is technology. And in fact, I can't you know show this, but uh, if if we were,、uh, I, I would encourage all the listeners to go out and look for a map, an ancient map、uh, from the time of Herodotus, and it's very interesting because the Greeks actually literally understood and saw the world. In the shape of a skull, so they knew about Europe and Africa and, and Asia. And if you look at these old maps from the time of Herodotus, it's drawn like the profile of a skull. Europe is the forehead, Africa is the chin, and Asia is the back of the head. This idea of literally mapping the human mind onto the world is, you know, it's right there. It's a beautiful metaphor for what I'm talking about here. So that's that's number one. Technology about is a discourse about the mind made tangible. The second thing I want to say is, pay attention to the way Herodotus discusses the Great Pyramids. Like all visitors to Egypt, they were all obsessed with the Great Pyramid, and he describes how the pyramids were built. Now you have to remember, by the time Herodotus visited Egypt, the Great Pyramids had been there for thousands of years. You know, it's it's just that old. And he wasn't an eyewitness to it. So what he ended up putting in his book was, you know, account he heard from the Egyptians, and and he talked about how, for ten years, all the people for Egypt were out there building the Great Pyramids. They they were working shifts of three hundred thousand men each. They would work for ten months. The entire country was was devoted to this project, and everybody in the whole country was either working on the pyramids directly, or they were supporting the people who were working on it. What is interesting here is he describes the whole effort the same way you would tell you would recite an epic poem. He talks about the ten years. He talks about the. Hundreds of thousands of people. He talks about the great evils and oppressions visited upon Egypt. He talks about the way the whole country was reorganized. So the second point I want to make is technology is always engaged in a discourse with the people who make it. The maker and the artifact are always in conversation with each other. Egypt shaped the Great Pyramids, but also the Great Pyramids reshaped Egypt. The entire country and society was. Completely reshaped by the technology. This is something that is really interesting to me, which is we don't think about the dynamic effects, the dynamic conversation between the things we make and the and who we are. Winston Churchill sort of summarized this by saying that we build houses, and then afterwards the houses build us, or they shape us. We we shape the houses, but then the houses shape us. He was talking about specifically the House of Commons. And Churchill was making a point that because the House of Commons is this rectangular building, it naturally set up a system where people would face each other across the center and and sit on one side versus the other, left and right, and they would be in this adversarial kind of debate with each other. They would naturally divide into two sides, and that was for him. Why the British system was focused on the two-party system? He he argued that the shape of the chamber literally shaped the way British politics、uh, was conducted. Now I I don't I think he makes too strong a claim. Um, and in our legislative chamber in the U.S., not just from Congress but at the state level, tend to be this horseshoe shape, which was meant to promote sort of camaraderie and and harmony.、Uh, obviously. You know our politics. Politics is nothing like that. So I'm not sure that thesis really holds. But I do think the idea that 
we build artifacts and the artifacts come back to rebuild us is very important. You know, think about the way we invented cars and then think about how the entire landscape of the United States was reshaped because of cars. We literally now rebuild our cities to make cars happier versus people. As a pedestrian in one of the newer cities on the West Coast, for example, you, as a pedestrian, you're in a hostile environment. In a car, you're much more comfortable. We literally reshaped who we are because of the artifacts. So that's the second piece. There is a conversation, a discourse between the artifact and the maker. And then the last point I want to make uh, also comes from Herodotus. He describes this wonderful scene where he goes into a temple in Thebes and he talks to the chief priests uh, of Thebes and at the time, there was a philosophical debate between the Greeks and the Egyptians over whether human beings are descended from mortals or the gods. So a lot of Greek philosophers say, well, you know, we have these myths about our great leaders being descended from the gods, uh, usually as the result of some of some sort of sexual assault. Uh, but that aside, we are descendants from, from the gods. And the Egyptians disagree. They say that mortals, humans, were descended from mortals from long ago, not from the gods recently. And the chief priest of Thebes, he, he took Herodotus to a room in the back. So imagine, you know, the scene out of Indiana Jones, where um, it's, it's this huge, huge back room. Very few people ever get to see it. And it's, it's, it's massive. It, it goes all the way down to the horizon. And Herodotus says, you know, I see statues, hundreds of statues, all standing in a line. They're gigantic. They're enormous. They're, they're just, you know, very typical Egyptian monumental architecture. And the chief priest points to the near statue and says, that is a statue of my father who was chief priest before me. And he made that statue when he was alive. Behind him is a statue of my grandfather, who is chief priest before my father. And he made that statue during his lifetime. Behind that is his father, who was chief priest before him, and so on, all the way down for 341 generations. I can look at this and know exactly where I come from. And I can tell you, that is why we're all descended from mortals, all the way down. I get chills every time I read that passage because it's just, you know, just imagining is incredible because here you see the third way in which technology is a discourse. And it's probably the most important one that I want people to focus on, which is technology is a way for us to, to tell the world who we are. It's a way for us to fix our place in the world. When you think about technology, we are much too narrow-minded in focusing on the object itself and instead of thinking about all the people around the technology. So think about it, right? I've, I've said so far, technology is the mind made tangible. Technology is a conversation between the maker and the artifact. Technology is also a story, a story that we tell each other. It is the way we express who we are. Um, in the same way that bees make hives and beavers make dams, we make technology. And technology is really an extension of who we are. It's a way for us to express who we are. So inventors, users, critics, salesmen, um, uh, people who, uh, who are rebels, hackers, Luddites, anybody who has some sort of interaction with technology are using that technology to express their deepest values. When you promote something, when you say, I want everyone to do this, to use this, you are, in fact, 
expressing some of your deepest values using that artifact. When you say, I don't want anybody to do this. This is terrible for society. Everybody should stop using TikTok. <laughs> you are also expressing your deepest values um, uh, by doing that. As a gamer, um, you are, in fact, expressing who you are in that, in that process. This is a conversation you have with other users, with yourself, with the world. It's a discourse. It's a way to express your skill. In fact, I would argue that in today's world, technology is, serves for us uh, the same purpose that epic poetry served for people of the time in the time of Herodotus, technology, high technology especially, is now our epic poetry. We are using it to tell a collective story about each other. This is how we express who we are. We are like those Egyptian priests who point to the statue and say, "This is who we are. This is where we come from." We do the same thing. Our artifacts literally are now our greatest creations, our our art projects. And so, you know, taking those three pieces together, what I want to say is, you know, when you're trying to tell a story about technology, you should always try to focus on these three aspects. How does the technology reshape society? How does technology express the deepest, innermost values of the society that embodied it, of the people who are using it, of the folks who are not using it? And, and how does it actually engaging a dynamic conversation. These are not static things. Things are always being improved, changed, hacked. The, the idea that a society is static when given a set of technology is deeply flawed. The ancients were no different from us. People are always hacking um, their own technology. Um, and so, you know, once you start thinking that way, you realize that technology is not just hardware. It's it's custom. It's law. It's 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 juries, it's legislatures. What are these things other than just ways for humans to, again, make their minds tangible, to reshape their own lives, to express who they are? So technology is literally everything that can be expressed and understood as the mind made tangible. And once you sort of reframe things that way, it becomes such a more vibrant and interesting piece of world building. And you can do so many more things to it. You know, if you're a, a game master, um, that there are things you can do to your world that would just make it so much more fun and interesting and give your players so many more affordances to, to engage with the world and to really express who they are as well. Because ultimately, what is the point of world building in a game? It is to allow the players to actually tell their story. And that's that's why my view of technology, I think, is very amenable to what we're trying to discuss here. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I find it really interesting, too, because you said human, the human uh, way they express. And something that Lily and I have commented on in the past is that in the world of D and D, yes, there's a lot of different cultures, a lot of different groups, but there's also different biological beings that have intelligence. It's not just humanity. There's different groups, and mm -hmm. a lot of them have similar origins. But some of them are snakes that then gained uh, sentience. So, like, how does that brain chemistry make their technology different? It's something that is lacking a lot, right? And I think that that's it's really interesting. One, I really appreciate that first point of broadening technology to things that have kind of just become mundane aspects of our life like the calendar once you pointed out that the calendar is technology all of a sudden you know my mind's blowing up here being like oh my god that is um and this idea that technology we shape it but then in return it shapes us and yeah i think once you bring in these ideas of yeah like the snake people that their brain at least the way it's described in the world building is calculating and methodical not emotional 
that's kind of the dividing line here. And when you mentioned the beehives, I remember I've had discussions with people about technology bad, technology good. It's not natural. And I remember bringing up that our cities are just our beehives. It's just what we it's what we do. If our cities aren't natural, mm-hmm. how is that possible? We build cities like a fox has a burrow. So if the burrow is natural, our cities are in a way natural too, because they're byproducts of us existing. And I like this idea that like two different species kind of creating two very different versions of the same thing. You know, the fox with its burrow, it's more rudimentary, but us with our cities. And once we bring in even these more kind of foreign thought process of Stephen's example here, the Yuan-Ti, how would that end up looking side by side? I, I love that. I love that. So if I can just take off from that and, and talk a little bit about concretely. Of course. So, you know, I, I give this talk and I, I people always ask, you know, what are some sort of concrete techniques you can use to, to make this work? Um, well, here's one, which is to reimagine technology, right? I keep on talking about technology being a discourse about skill. Mm-hmm. So... One thing as a world builder you can engage in is to reimagine technology as a language. Because I keep on talking about technology as a way to tell your story, as a way to have this conversation. Well, well, let's literally make that true. Rethink of it as a tech, as as a language. Okay, so I'll give you a few examples. There is the technology language of steampunk. Right. Everyone knows what steampunk is like, right? You take the technology vocabulary of Victorian era England specifically, um, but Europe in general. You go with with leather, with goggles, with this chrome, with steam. You know what it looks like. It's like Sherlock Holmes kind of look. You take that vocabulary and you take the grammar of of electricity, of early steam, of, of, of mechanical intricate clockwork. You take all of that and you say, okay, this is the vocabulary. This is the grammar. What can we do with this language? What are the things we can build? How does a society dependent on this language think of itself? How does it map itself onto the world and, and back? And you can elaborate out this wonderful world of magic and technology, which is why steampunk is so deeply fascinating, because right. it's it's an alternative language of how technology could have evolved. And, and we love that. I do something similar with my epic fantasy novels. I create something called silkpunk, which is a technology vocabulary based on the traditions of East Asian antiquity. So the vocabulary uses words like silk and paper and wooden architecture and mortise and tendon construction and all these ancient techniques that have been in East Asia for um, evolved in East Asia over hundreds and uh, hundreds of years and sometimes thousands of years. And then you take the, the, the grammar of East Asian technology, which is often about imitating nature, of, of using nature as an inspiration. So there's a lot of wind power, a lot of a lot of water power, a lot of the idea of how do you situate your buildings and your artifacts so that they feel like part of nature rather than dominating it? How do you make it actually seamlessly flow into nature? You take that grammar and you take that vocabulary and you say, okay, what if we now want to use that language to describe modernity? What would computers invented using this technology look like? What would airplanes invented using this technology language look like? What would juries look like? What would legislatures look like? What would 
the organs of collective decision-making look like. It's so fun once you start going down this route. You say, okay, let's let's invent a language. I mean, we love inventing languages in D&D, right? We love yeah. inventing languages in any kind of role-playing game. Uh, as a novelist, uh, you know, I love it. So why not take that idea into the invention of your technology language? Figure out what the vocabulary is, what the grammar is, and then start elaborating some sentences. Start constructing some artifacts and then think, okay, if this is the way we, they do things, how does that affect their calendar? How does that reshape the way they conduct funerals? How does that change the way they use metaphors when thinking about the world? Um, how does that just alter the way they describe things? And how does that turn into idioms? And how does that turn into things that don't make sense? Because you know, with any language, there are going to be idioms, which is uh, the sort of expression that whose meaning cannot be ascertained just by looking at the component parts. It's idiosyncratic. It, it has some sort of history to it. It's not obvious. Technology is like that, too. We, we do certain things that just don't make sense. I mean, why is it that, for example, here in the U.S., we don't like to use roundabouts, traffic circles? <laughs> why is it that we don't like doing those? Uh, what is it about our history that makes us historically do this thing where we take the interstate highway and then run it down the middle of a city, destroying neighborhoods? What, what, it makes no sense when you look at, at it objectively, you know, in some, in some fashion. But we did it. What was the history that made that a thing that we, we do? When you're building your, your technology world, think about things like that, because those are the things that are most interesting. It's sort of like when you take a look at a tree, it's where the tree has scars and knots and, and, and these burrs that gives it interest, that gives it texture. It's the same thing when you're doing world building. Your, your language of technology will have interesting idioms, things that don't make sense, little historical anomalies right. that allow you to say, this is a real world. This is a world that feels lived in. Yeah, there's something with that, that this kind of yeah, idioms and idiosyncrasies and what you were saying with the roundabout and stuff is there's a world building technique that I personally use and I've heard it given as advice. And it's it's pretty basic little technique. I've given it as advice. I've taken it as advice is that you pick kind of three events, one recent, one far enough away that it still affects everything, but is a couple generations removed. Maybe your grandmother mother would remember but you personally didn't but you still feel the ramifications so in the united states it would be 9-11 then vietnam then you could do world war ii or you could do the civil war these are all things that still affect your day-to-day -day, but they're just one generations removed and i think now that you've we're talking about technology i think that would be really interesting to do with technology technology and advancements we mm -hmm. could do the same thing and instead of these cultural events we could do cell phones the internet, the computer with Turing way back in the day. And we could go even further back on just ways of construction technology. And I think that that's a really interesting kind of way to look at it. And I never thought until right now to do that same aspect with uh, technology. And then you could extrapolate on how that one event blew up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, you can, you can um, once you start thinking that way, you realize everything is so much more dynamic and interesting because yeah. one of the great things about technology is that like any sort of language, it evolves. So there are going to be imperfections and intermediate stages. If you assume everything works perfectly the way it's it's found, it's not interesting. Yeah. But when things are sort of 
still evolving and not perfect, that's where all the fun is. You know, you've got this new plow. It doesn't work perfectly yet, so people are still sort of hacking with right. it, tinkering with it. You've got this new way of extracting water out of the ground. It doesn't work 100%, so people are still, like, playing around with it. That's where all the fun stuff can be. You know, again, as a, as a world builder, you put that in, and it just gives your players so much more more lovers to play with more ideas yeah. on, on, on how to make their characters tell more interesting stories it's it's just a lot of fun also to make the world feel lived in sorry just this one little thing with uh if someone were to play a DD game in our world right now not in our world and then someone said roll up the window the player would go what how do i roll up the window it's a button and uh, kind of you can make little things like that that just make it feel really real. Absolutely. Or, or like the way, you know, people now say, you know, hang up your phone. It, it makes yeah. no sense to most people yeah. who are younger, right? It's just, it, it's like, what, what are you talking about? I have one question that I would love if you happen to have an answer to. We kind of started with you talking about this cyclical give and take between technologies, as you've brought in the category, and um, our customs. I was wondering if you could give maybe from your novel series or your world a concrete example of this. Do you have any concrete examples of in your culture or your um, stories? Yes, I, I I can try to give an example. Uh, so in my um, novel series, um, the writing system is extremely complicated and strange. Um, it is, as far as I know, not like any extant human historical writing system. So the people, the fantasy culture in my books, write using something called logograms. And they're not two-dimensional things at all. They're really three-dimensional objects. So the, the way you write is you take a silk scroll and you, you drop... Uh, lumps of wax onto it and then you have to carve the waxes into little statues essentially little figurines using a knife and the three-dimensional shape of the logograms is what you read um, it cannot be reduced down to a, a two-dimensional representation i mean there is an alternate script that uses simplified forms but it, it doesn't express the full nuance of the three-dimensional writing there's no human writing system that's like that and so i had to sort of explain how this came to be it turns out that among the 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 ancestors of the people who um uh, invented this form of writing, there was a large fraction of the initial founding population who were blind. Right. And, and for them, reading with the finger um, is as natural as, as right. reading it visually. <laughs> this historical accident is what caused them to invent the writing system like this. It's it's fundamentally a tactile uh, writing system. And of course, later on in the novel, you realize that one of the gods is actually blind. And, and this, this, this whole thing carries through the entire novel. The fact that you can read these with the finger means that everybody knows how to read in the dark. They don't use a lamp at night. They oh, just touch cool. it and, and run it through. Uh, and the three-dimensional yeah. shape becomes a very important part of calligraphy, of making your argument. There's actually a very visual component to it. When you're trying to make something emphatic, you make the logograms taller. When you're trying to make something uh, more subtle, you make them lower. When you're trying to write in a certain way, you use more harder wax. When you're trying to do something more disposable, you don't. There's just a whole lot of stuff you can elaborate on that which i found to be deeply fun and interesting i think that's incredibly cool and just coming back from a game master perspective i try and world build from the idea of fun 
what's the point of putting this in my world that we're playing a game in if it's not fun, if it's just needless and tedious? And I love this idea that you've just brought up, because if we have this three-dimensional writing system from one culture and the other culture is not like that, Stephen's party is trying to break into a house. No lights are on. Okay, well, are they asleep or are they from this culture that reads in the dark? That's, it just adds this that one little tidbit of them being able to read in the dark affects so much. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> That's what I appreciate in game design, too. You know, when I play games and they introduce a mechanic, mm-hmm. do they take that mechanic and really make it do amazing things i mean that's why you know in some ways portal is such a classic because it introduces one simple mechanic and then you have to rethink your relationship to the to the world entirely um until you know not to give any spoilers until that ending in portal 2 um where you have to do that thing and it's just like it's a it's a thing you've never done before and you do it and you're like of course makes sense this is why so far i've never been able to do it but now i can do it i i I love that sort of thing one little question there um you mentioned that or steven mentioned that the people shape the gods so is the god blind because are the were the people in the founding culture blind because the god was blind or is the god blind because the founding culture had so many blind people wow uh that is interesting i haven't actually thought that through (laughs) now that's 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 like a topic for a whole other (laughs) essay (laughs) that's really cool (laughs) yeah yeah i was gonna kind of Go back to a comment you made, though, that I found very interesting of you said with your silk punk genre, you were taking from East Asian and antiquity and its technologies. And you were talking about how it uses nature. And I find it interesting bringing that to a fantasy world, which you you did actually in your novel, where like there's dragons now. So what would this technology build in a world where dragons are part of nature? You know, like what how does adding these magical element uh, elemental creatures how does that change like the difference of taking from our real life um, parallels say ancient uh like uh, the dynasty era of east asia and then adding these like more magical creatures like the ripple effects of those i find very interesting yeah i i I agree with you i think that's that's where all the fun is i mean you know one thought exercise I, i love to engage in is to rethink how architecture would be changed if you have real flying dragons who can breathe fire i mean if that's the case how would you rebuild your castles to defend that you know (laughs) the castles we have don't really make sense which is why a lot of fantasy um to me doesn't do the work you know it's sort of like you take existing european castles and you say these castles will defend against dragons (laughs) no they won't it makes no no sense yeah Uh, just to just to interject we talk about this all the time in the podcast (laughs) they build these walls they build these towers and it's like okay so the wall is going to keep out the raiders but what about you know the flying giant castles and the freaking dragons everywhere and just the other all these flying creatures that are able to rain hellfire from the sky right this is what distinguishes a a a a lazy sort of world building versus something that's actually fun and interesting so again if you're gonna do this work of taking a new technology language and and play it out and figure out how does the technology reshape our houses and the houses reshape the people then do the work of figuring it out i think it's fun to design a a castle that can defend against dragons figure out how to do it yeah um you know once you figure that out i i guarantee you it's going to be a much more fun world to play in because they're just it's 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 now no longer just going through some fake set you're now in a real lived-in world where you have to figure out how to 
how to do everything. I mean, you know, it's it, the only thing I can say is, you know, this just makes the whole thing so much more fun and engaging and, and interesting. It, it becomes like a way for you to really express yourself, too. It really becomes yours. Um, one analogy I use is this, which is I say that writers who are worth reading are always striving to invent their own language because the language, the common tongue that we all speak, is really actually a collection of cliches. It's, it's, it's the lowest common denominator to describe things that we can all sort of agree on. But you as an individual, if you want to be a writer worth reading, you have you you obviously see the world in a unique way because we all do. That's that's what it is. You have to invent your own language, your own unique way of using mm -hmm. words, of of new words, of of images, of metaphors, of rhythms. Um, you have to invent your own idiolect, your own unique personal language to really be able to tell the stories that only you can tell. And it's the same way with gamers, too. You, if you want to be a game master worth um, following, you're going to have to invent a world that is uniquely yours. And your players also have to tell the stories about their characters that are just theirs. We all play within a system, of course, but you got to build on that to make it into something really unique, really special, really just no longer a cliche. I mean, I guess that's the thing that I want to say all the time. You have to think hard and avoid cliches and, and get to something beyond cliches because this is a game about invention. So, you know, do the work and invent. That's where you're going to have the most fun. I think this idea of grammar and language is a really important one that you bring up, not even in the sense of like Tolkien writing, you know, the whole Elvish dictionary, but just in the sense right. that as you were talking about going back to um, the ancient time in uh, East Asian culture and seeing how kind of they looked at things as a viewpoint, their grammar was nature. And I think it kind of, and then extrapolating upon that gives you this nice groundwork where one, you're not building from complete scratch. You're finding something that exists and building it and extrapolating. But two, it gives the readers or your players this nice kind of benchmark to return to of once they get the idea that, oh, it's all simulating nature and we have a gun, but the gun is based on, I don't know, wind. They they came on, how do we harness the power of wind to uh, cause harm? Or just some random example, but it gives kind of this like home of familiarity. If you have this kind of understanding, this grammar, as you've been saying in this language, it gives you this continuity, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's very important, um, you know, as a world builder, um, when you're trying to do something interesting to not just copy, but to yeah. actually really build on, on the thing. I mean, you know, we all know sort of the, the whole idea of great artists um, steal, but that has to be really well understood. So right. steampunk is interesting, not because it somehow aped Victorian era technology and copied it so that you you know you can build these things that that's not the point you, you take that aesthetic and you really understand something about it and then you make it into your own steampunk is very interesting because you carry out the it's in some ways a you take the stereotype about which means a low resolution image of what Victorian era England was really about you take that stereotype a very low resolution 
image of it. And then you you take that, but you don't you don't just copy that thing. You actually build on that into something much more elaborate and much more fantastical. Um, obviously, we understand steampunk is not yeah. history. It's 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 a fantasy. So you build on that to turn it into something. And I think oftentimes when when we're doing this with other cultures, we don't necessarily keep that in mind. The goal isn't to Ape mm-hmm. and to copy and to appropriate what other cultures have done. It's to take a stereotype, a low, not in the negative sense, a stereotype being what I'm saying here is a low resolution image in its original sense, a very low resolution image. And we know it's low resolution. In fact, you can take low resolution images from multiple cultures and think about what are the other alternative ways for humans to understand the universe? What are some other ways for us to map our minds onto the universe? What are some other ways to divide up space and time? What are some other ways to reconsider our relationship with the world? You take all of these things as inspiration, and then you build on that and invent your own language. So I can't emphasize enough how important I think that is to effective world building, where you do the hard work of taking your inspiration and then really carry out ultimately, you know, what, what you can do uh, to elaborate upon these forms into something truly your own. Like I said, every great writer has to actually invent their own language for them to tell the stories they can tell. And I think if you're a world builder and you're trying to make a world that really works, you have to take inspiration and not just copy it, but elaborate and build on it until it's your own. That's the key. Yeah, I find with um, the Forgotten Realms, which is the base, yeah, core world of d and I'd say it's from your vocabulary example, it seems to be Renaissance European uh, era, and then magic is the kind of technology. For, like if steam is uh, for steampunk, magic seems to be the technology because even the artificers are mm-hmm. considered a magical uh, class in D anD. d But I don't find it does often make the the kind of more logic jumps that I would like to see of a magic using society because if you can make fire with your hands i feel like there'd be so much more yeah technological there would be th- technology that doesn't exist of that we have now but there'd be a lot of new things that would be more advanced than we would have in renaissance europe because you could just fire trying to make fire and consistent fire seems to be the core of a lot of our inventions uh and engines and things that we've used in modern society and the fact that you could just make it so easily i feel like would change a lot and snuff it so easily you could control the not only the making of fire but you can control putting it out and starting it again so rapidly right you could uh heat no heat heat no heat just by snapping your fingers indefinitely Mm -hmm. (laughs) what what would that make and of course as steven was saying the forgotten realms doesn't tell us what that would make it makes nothing yeah, yeah. I, I think it would be very interesting if you're playing in that kind of world to like take it to be like, what if you can make any elemental? But like, I think that's that's one just for technology. I'm now, as we've been talking about the calendar and the how you live your life, that is something that I don't even think I've scratched the surface and to think about how that would change things. You can also think about these aspects of the world that don't make sense and think about whether you can build a campaign or a story around that. If something makes no sense, maybe that is actually a, a point of tension. You know, let's figure out why it is the right. way it is. Or, or you know, maybe someone realized it doesn't make sense. Let's challenge it. I mean, um, it's sort of like, oftentimes, you know, in the real world, it's the same way. There are a lot of things we do that make no sense. But then once it changes, everyone's sort of like, wow, why, why is it for so long we just did things that way that make no sense i mean (laughs) there are tons of examples where for hundreds of years we did things a certain way and then one day we woke up and said this makes no sense let's not do it anymore these are great potential 
openings for stories for campaigns. Oh, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite parts of being a dungeon master is when my players, Stephen and the others, go, that doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. This is a plot hole. But then I know it does make sense. And I know if they just ask the right question in three sessions, they're going to go, oh my gosh, this does make sense. This was good world building. And it's like, yeah, be- but it's only good world building because you initially thought it was a plot hole. Mm-hmm. But um, to touch on the Forgotten Realms and D&D in general, one thing I find a lot of world builders struggle with is the intersection of magic and technology. And there is a different world, Eberron, a campaign setting where it's really popular. Besides the Forgotten Realms, it's probably the second most popular one. And the way it answers this question is there there is, to boil it down very simply, there is no intersection between magic and technology. All the technology is magic. The creator went in with the mindset of any sufficiently advanced magic will resemble technology. And so instead of guns, they have arcane firearms. They're just wands. It's just a wooden wand in your hand that works like a gun. Instead of electricity, they have, you know, elemental nodes that power things. And so it resembles steampunk, but there's no steam. And it resembles our world, but there's no circuitry and there's no electrical grids. Mm -hmm. It's all magic, but it really resembles. And I was thinking, that's a really interesting way to handle it. But what if these two things were still separate? I feel a lot of people, especially with the introduction of the Artificer just two years ago, People have a lot of struggle fitting an artificer into their game. And I was wondering your thoughts on the intersection of automatons and clockwork trinkets and artifice with wizards who can, you know, just cast fabricate. I, I think I think the trick there is to um, sort of understand that there, in the real world, there are always going to be multiple ways of doing something, multiple paths of accomplishing something. And right. they often exist together and there's going to be trade-offs that you just sort of have to judge between and that's how we do it so one example i have is you know if you were going back to the turn of the century not this one but turn of the last century so 1900s in the early decades uh, of that time if you go to new york city and you were asked to make a prediction about the future of cars, you would actually be hard-pressed to make a good prediction because at that time, about a third of the cars in the streets of New York were electric cars. Hmm. That's right, they were electric. And about a third were steam-powered, and a third were uh, gasoline-powered cars. And if you were trying to figure out what the future would look like, say, in 50 years, I'm not sure the smart money would have been on gasoline Hmm. because gas-powered cars at the time were extremely noisy they smell terrible and you have to hand crank it and that cranking action is extremely dangerous Uh, people would be hurt and killed sometimes uh, by doing that moreover internal combustion engines require you to use a transmission and the interface for using the transmission was incredibly complicated different manufacturers did it differently so learning how to drive a stick back then was very hard you had to learn like dozens of different ways depending on who made the car electric cars on the other hand were battery powered they were clean they made no they were very quiet and they went were you know whenever you want it uh 
they they were great. They didn't have great range, but if you were driving the city, that wasn't a big problem. And in fact, electric cars were backed by you know Thomas Edison and and all these folks who were you know the Elon Musk of the day, <laughs> right? You, you, if you wanted to bet on the future, that was that's what you wanted to bet on. And then steam was an old technology that's been around for decades. Everyone knew how to work with it. It's a little slow. It's a little dangerous, but if something went wrong, you could fix it easily.、Uh, and it took a long time to heat up, so there were some disadvantages. But bottom line is, it's hard for you to say that gasoline was the way to go. I mean, you know, as it turns out, they discovered cheap oil in Texas, and the rest is history. But without that, we could have had a very different future. But the point is, when you're in a world where I'm just gonna say that the magic is a form of technology. There, it doesn't mean that it's gonna dominate everything. There will be places where alternate forms of technology will be advantageous, and there will be reasons to pick those in certain cases. And it's just gonna be a matter of trade-offs and trying to figure out in what situations one particular vocabulary triumphs over another. It's sort of like we we have this assumption that firearms are superior to.、Um, Bow and arrow in every instance, and therefore, as soon as you introduce firearms, why would people still use bow and arrow? Well, you know that is not the case.、Uh, certainly, according to some his- historians, this is controversial, but according to some historians, firearms were introduced in Japan and simply failed to take hold, mainly because they were not,、right. in fact, as advantageous as bow and arrow. And samurai fought with arrows for a lot longer and more effectively than firearms. It wasn't until You know, centuries later, the firearms eventually, finally overcame. But th- there are, you know, the idea that that necessarily technology follows one particular path, and that the evolution of technology is just this linear climb up the ladder is very flawed.、Uh, technology is much more like a web, and it goes back and forth. Like you know, for example, electric cars were seen as not useful and. Discarded as a technology for decades before it became popular again. So you never know what's going to happen. It's not a tree. It's not necessarily a ladder. It could go back like a network.、Right. Um, and I think that's more interesting. So in your example, Lily, I think、um, it's very possible that in a world where you have technology, as we understand technology, as well as magical technology,、um, there will be applications in which technology is. As technology will have an advantage and may in fact replace and displace it, and then we'll just be interesting to find out what those situations are. There's that one Dutch. Just a little anecdote. There's that one Dutch explorer who, when I read his account, I thought was kind of funny. Is he said that the guns were useless against the Japanese samurai because he himself watched them fail、mm-hmm. the guns, and、um, I'm sure if you asked that guy. He not would not have said guns were the future of warfare, at least in Japan. Yeah, and also I've I've heard people talk. Yeah, the historians talk of the fact the gun versus、um, mm-hmm. bows and arrows is the fact that it's just harder to make a bolt for a crossbow, harder to make an arrow than just getting a little round ball like that doesn't even need to be perfectly round and put into your barrel.、That's、so、right. if people magically can make arrows, or if there's a group of people who are just amazing at easily making bows and arrows, then yeah, why not crossbows being the the main form? And they're like, yeah,、nah, you could use that like clunky, like loud device、yes. if you want to, but I'll take my silent bow and arrow any day. There's um,、yeah. in I think part of the reason people love Avatar so much. Is that their intersection of the magic system? The Avatar, Avatar, Last Airbender. Yes, Avatar, Avatar the Last Airbender.、Yes. They're <laughs> sorry. They're. I always forget the James Cameron one exists.、Mm-hmm. The intersection of their magic system, which is also a very tight 
hard magic system that has such defined rules, but it is also so simple, I find helps. But also their intersection, when you look at the Fire Nation, is so well thought out, it seems. The way they use their firebending in relation to their big steam engines of war that no other country could invent because they didn't have the mastery over fire is very interesting. And I think that helps it become so popular. And I was wondering if seeing as you're here and you were talking earlier about silk punk and your high fantasy settings i don't know if you have magic in your world but i was wondering if you had any examples of the intersection of um, magic and technology in your world that you've used so um i do something kind of interesting in my own novels which is magic is um generally not present or at least it seems to be assumed that this is a world in which there is no magic but there are gods right and they cause certain things to happen the intervention of the gods often take the form of coincidences or certain slight tilts in the odds in one direction or another so the push of the scale yeah so it's sort of like the way we understand the supernatural in our world in some sense we sort of a lot of us go with the assumption that there is no true magic, but you know it doesn't hurt to pray or to ask for help when when you're <laughs> in one of those situations because maybe things will be nudged slightly in one direction or another. So in my novels, the gods are real, but whether they actually cause something to happen or not is always left in doubt. Um, the gods claim credit for things that could easily be just a matter of luck or actually ingenuity. Um, I deliberately wrote it that way so that there is actually very you can always explain everything purely by rational, non-supernatural means. But the gods are present, and they serve as a kind of Greek chorus to the action, uh, which is the way I enjoy doing it. You know, because of my background as a technologist, I find the idea of fantasy technology much more interesting than um, pure magic, per se. However, you know, if I were to uh, introduce magic uh, to a world like this, I would probably treat magic very much as another form of technology as another form of energy so i would sort of figure out its limitations its costs um how does it work how does it function what are the rules it follows uh, and try to make that work that's not the most interesting way of doing it I, I think um magic that is truly magical meaning that it doesn't need to follow rules that we take for granted. It doesn't need to follow conservation of, of energy and, and then all, the, all these other physical laws. I think that's much more interesting and it makes war voting harder, but also um, more, you know, uh, challenging. Uh, I think in those cases, you sort of have to figure out, you have to still figure out some sort of cost to magical actions in order to have it make sense because otherwise it's just a matter of balance. It just doesn't make sense when you can imagine things into into being and just call upon the supernatural any moment you want to, then everything can be solved by deus ex machina, and then you just never have any interesting challenges. Sort of like having a god uh, as your as your character. Okay, well you got to have some limitations <laughs> right. on that, otherwise it's just not interesting. If you're, you know, if you have Superman and there's no kryptonite, then there's just no story to tell it's not interesting you, you, you you're just overpowering over everything yeah i i was just gonna say that i even though you don't have magic but you do have the gods and then in the second book you introduced a dragon like creature yeah um i liked your one i really liked how you explained uh fire breath uh in an actual like in logic like you logic like in a way that could conceivably work and then also 
I really like with your gods how they morphed with the believers. Like who was yeah. who was uh, venerating them changed their look and the way they were just depicted. I really like that. That that was a direct take from my story about Herodotus, as as you probably noticed. You know, you know the Egyptians claimed that they were the first to name the gods and to build statues and and altars to them, and the Greeks sort of copied them. I really like that because the, the, the it's just interesting to me that the Egyptians, you know, who in our own uh, stereotypical understanding we often think of them as. Um, not rational we think of the civilization right, as, yeah. as not rational as not um as, as obsessed with you know supernatural and and sort of uh these arcane and 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 mystical ideas but in herodotus description the egyptians come out and say we were the first ones to discern the gods we actually named them and we we built the first statues we we sort of created them in a sense uh which to me is awesome and and it just sort of shows how the past is far more complicated and the attitudes of, of, of ancient peoples is, you know, just far more complicated and interesting and nuanced uh, than we sometimes take it to be. And it also is a reminder in our world building when we're trying to be inspired by historical uh, examples. I, I think this is something that I, I, I tell people a lot, which is don't fall into the trap of thinking that the ancients were somehow not as smart as we are or that the ancients were foolish or dumb or ignorant mm -hmm. they were not any of those things they did not have the same kind of knowledge we do uh, but their attitudes were nuanced they had very thoughtful skeptical views of a lot of things we should not assume that that they were um, fools um, yeah. when, when in fact a lot of these things you can see from their own writings that there was lively debate skepticism and, and doubt <laughs> Um, which makes everything so much more interesting. We built everything we have on their foundation. If they were fools, how would we have been able to use mm -hmm. that foundation? Yep. I also think that's interesting with Stephen mentioning the god there and you're um, extrapolating on what he said. It kind of brings back to what you were talking about with uh, Congress and how it's almost like the gods are technology where we they shape us and we shape them and it's this cyclical thing of they are what we need but they're also what they are because that's what we need. Yeah, I love that. That is really kind cool. of. Uh, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I think for Forgotten Realms purposes, as we were talking, there's a god of invention. He is a lot of times his believers are the ones who make the. No, nah, maybe not the printing press, but they make a lot of the ones like they make carts and they make a, a rudimentary steam engine, and so I like this idea that it's not because they are believers of him that they make things they venerate him because he gives them maybe that muse that that push that little he gives them the little bit of as you said like the serendipity to kind of come up with that idea when they're having a problem like oh why can't i figure out this invention he gives them the little spark to be like uh oh, do it this direction but he's not the one making it that's right that's how the gods in my um in my uh novels work so there's literally a scene where you know one of the engineers is trying to research um electricity which in my books are called the silkmotic power because they first notice it uh by rubbing silk against materials in the same way that we call electricity electricity because the greeks discovered using amber which is you know electrum <laughs> so um so anyway um in this in this in my right. world there's a scene where a researcher is trying to figure out separating substances that are conductors from insulators and one of the gods sort of intervenes a little bit to nudge 
the engineer to pay attention to a particular mineral which becomes a conductor when exposed to light. Uh, and that is how they discover photoelectric effects and photoconductivity. And, you know, the gods play the role of basically serendipitously getting researchers to, to pay attention to things that they otherwise might have ignored, which is, you know, oftentimes how our own scientists describe it. You know, a lot of our inventions and discoveries are made serendipitously in the process of pursuing something else. And I really like that, the idea that, yeah. you know, we are trying to know the world, to know the universe, and we're applying our rational means to it. But ultimately, there's always an element of luck, of fate, like randomness to it. Yeah, that's amazing. There's, with that same god, just a little story from the world as he uh, made it so gunpowder doesn't work in the <laughs> Forgotten Realms because they, they discovered gunpowder and it was too devastating and it made warfare too easy and he was upset about this. And so him and the goddess of magic worked together to make it so in this world, gunpowder is just inert. So if you go to one of the other settings where it isn't, um, Earth is actually a setting in it if you were to take a revolver from here to the forgotten realms the second you touch down your revolver just doesn't work and in in return he gave them the alchemical process of making black powder which is just gunpowder with ridiculous extra steps so that most people wouldn't want to use it i love it um, so it, <laughs> it exists and it's inherently magical too so that's something it can be shut down but i've always found that a really funny intervention of the gods relating to technology that he saw this technology as being capable of ravishing the world so he just added extra steps to it that makes it too annoying to do for most part it, it, it what, what you're describing there also brings to mind another aspect of world building a twist which i think will be really fun which is if you live in a world in which the physical laws can be altered mm -hmm. arbitrarily by authorities uh, based on what you do then you're going to do things differently, right? It's sort of like reacting to an overweening bureaucracy, right? If you know that if you make something too good, they're going to take it away, then yeah. you're going to learn to make things not too good, right? What, what would be your, your process of inventing something and making something so that it's just efficient enough to accomplish your goals, but not so <laughs> powerful that the gods will take it away, right? That makes it so interesting to think about how you would react. You, again, you know, in a world like that, humans, so this is the other thing that I, I, I tell people, that remember, humans or elves or whoever your sentient beings are, they are clever and they're dynamic. They're going to react. Right? <laughs> Things are not just going to go down one route, right? I, I often say that the reason dystopian novels often don't work for me is because they just posit that the world got there in one step. Along the way, no one resisted. They just go down the slippery slope argument and assume that no one will resist, no one will rise up, no one will hack it, no one will push back. In the real world, it never works that way. Everything, I mean, look how hard it is to get the tiniest reform through. Um, right. Every change brings a counter change. People are smart, people are resilient, people will try to hack around it. So if you have a world in which the gods arbitrarily come down to change the laws of the universe, you are going <laughs> to react differently. I mean, it's sort of like yeah. if you're playing Final Fantasy Tactics, uh, the old game. Um, you would, oh, one of my favorites. Right. Remember the judges were introduced in the GBA version. Oh, yeah. Where they could alter the rules on the battlefield arbitrarily 
depending on where you go. You react differently. You yeah. build your party differently so that you can be prepared for these things. That's that's what it is. And everyone is a gamer. Humans are humans, and <laughs> all sentient beings are gamers. So we're gonna be prepared for those situations. Yeah. So I think that's the thing that, that I want to say. You know, when you're doing your world building, remember that everyone is a gamer. They all know how to anticipate and prepare and react to these things. If your world is arbitrary, they're gonna be prepared for it. If your world changes in this way. They're gonna change in response. I've got another question. You brought up elves here, and I think another aspect of world building and technology that I find is slight, a little bit difficult for me, and I think for a lot of people, is the aspect that you talk about these ancients, right? And so the joke I always like to say is that you, the DM, describes, and the party walks into this fabulous ancient pyramid, and it's. Uh, reaching to the gods it's been deserted for a thousand years what could these great ancient minds have been thinking and then the dwarf looks at you and goes yeah my grandpa built this i he, he's living down in silvery moon now we could go ask him what he was thinking and so this idea of how how do you account for an elf living a thousand years and technology advancing with that in mind this idea that the ancients are still here and if they're not here then it was just someone's dad um, I think that trips up a lot of people with that and technology because of the fact that we, you can't camp compound on the ancients if the ancients aren't ancient. It's it's you're absolutely right. I mean, it's sort of like you know all these stories about Atlantis. It's the same way, right? They're they're supposed to live for thousands of years, or they're virtually immortal, and we all sort of imagine that that just means they become static and they never advance in any way, and and that's the only way we can make sense of it because we have a hard time dealing with the idea that people can live on and on and, and see change. But the thing is, you know, I, I feel like um, we ourselves are experiencing some version of that. Um, it is true that technology is, the, the, the evolution of technology is increasing at a very rapid exponential pace, uh, such that we go through major transformations um, within a lifetime that would have taken multiple generations in the past. I mean, if you think about it, right? we went through this entire phase where music was largely consumed in the form of cassette tapes and then discs mm -hmm. and then, you know, actual digital files and now streaming. And this is all within a very, very brief period of time. And, and these medium shifts are transformative. I mean, in the past, a, a medium change like that would have taken generations, but we went through it within just like that. So all of us are in some ways living literally like your ancients who have lived through, uh, you know, generational changes <laughs> yeah. and, and, and still have to deal with it. I, I think we can take some of that experience, some of that future shock that we describe and sort of extrapolate from that experience and then see if we can bring that into our world building. I, I bet that we can do it. And it'll be very interesting to think about somebody who has, you know, lived through and seen um, what in our world would have taken um, a, a thousand years, but for them, it's all within a lifetime. They can recall um, Cleopatra um, as well as, you know, talking with Ronald Reagan. You know, what would that be like, you know, that they, they went through all of these tremendous changes within their single lifetime? Um, we, in our own experience, now have that. I mean, thinking back to, I don't know, this will date me, of course, but Thinking back to the time I got my first email and thinking back to the time when we would run across 
college campuses to look for a terminal to check your email right to today you know um the, the way communication mm. happens it it just sometimes i feel like that me that used to run around trying to check my email lived in a different you know a different era you know it was some ages ago it was a different lifetime almost but that has to be in some sense the experience of of, of these ancients who are still with us um that that has to be the case and so i think it would be cool to build a campaign or to build a story around the idea of future shock for the ancients, the the, the ones that have seen all this stuff and, and now they have to deal with. Right. <laughs> so you would you would gravitate towards the idea that they would be, um, yeah, in shock as the slower, the faster lived lives. I think so. Humans. I, yeah, I uh, think so. Just they just advance and advance and advance in their short lives. And you kind of gravitate towards the idea of the elves sitting there going, what is happening? I, I sort of like that. I sort of like the idea that they've seen all of this and they're sort of like either that, or they'll be like, you know, I've seen all of this and certain things never change. You know, I mean, this is something that I sort of see too. Like in Karadita's, uh, there's this wonderful description of, um, funeral customs. And, um, uh, what Herodotus was focused on was, he was describing the sales tactics of uh, mortuary workers. And, and he says, you know, he says, oh, you know, when, when your loved one died and then you go to one of these places uh, for embalming, they, 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 they take you through this presentation and they show you there are many ways to prepare the mummy. There's the really, really cheap way, you know, <laughs> you can do it. There's the middle way. Then there's the really awesome way, which is much more expensive. Now, how much do you love, right, your parent? Now, do you want to go with the cheap way? Huh? Or, or do you want to go with, you know, I, I was like, oh, my God, you know, human nature never changes because nothing changes. It's, it's like it's it's so it's so ugly for people to do this. But this is this is human nature. That's what they do. Um, and so, you know, maybe the elves are like that. They'll be like, I've seen all this stuff, but, you know, sometimes nature human nature or elf nature or whatever does not change because i i know a thousand years ago when they did this and it's the same idea just over and over again right you're not new <laughs> yeah I, I could also think too like with elves say they learned bronze or silver to be a bit more magical so like hewing silver and forging it into weapons and so they use silver weapons not because it's more fancy or it's more expensive it's like that's what we knew yeah, we hear there's this new way to make iron and to fold it, but it works for us. Like, I don't want to learn this new way, you know? Right. Stuck in their, stuck yeah. in their old ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's a, a weapon from a more civilized time, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I want to thank you so much for talking to us. Ken, I want to give you the space now, though. Talk about your, your series, your series that we've alluded to throughout this whole talk and that the newest book has just come out. Oh yeah, right. The Dandelion Dynasty is, you know, what I what I call a silk punk epic fantasy, and it took me ten years to write. There are four books in it. Uh, the first book is called The Grace of Kings, and the last book is called Speaking Bones. So, if you're interested in the stuff I've been talking about, you know, about engineering, about societies being shaped by the things they build, I think you would enjoy it. I was trained as a technologist and as a lawyer, so the series shows my obsession with those topics. Like Tolkien, I was very inspired by Anglo-Saxon poetry and by the classics. So a lot of the language in the books will probably remind people of that kind of Anglo-Saxon poetry. It's, it's, it's a deliberate 
attempt uh, to to sort of build on it. So there's a lot of use of kennings, of phytotes, of other rhetorical tropes that are very Anglo-Saxon uh, in origin. It does, you know, marry itself to this East Asian antiquity technology vocabulary. And I think that's a very interesting aesthetic. It's sort of, like I was saying earlier, you don't want to just take something and copy it. I find that not interesting. It's much more interesting to take things that, to me, are deeply interesting and and inspiring and then try to build a new language out of it and that's basically what i've tried to do here i try to explore in the novels uh, all the ideas i have about law as technology of, of technology as a, as a discourse and ultimately the novel which is inspired uh in the first book by these legends during the founding of the han dynasty by the time you get to the last book you realize that what I actually was trying to tell is the story about how do you build modernity using this alternative technology vocabulary, not just in terms of building artifacts like computers, but also how do you build a constitutional monarchy? Like what is even a constitution? Like you start out with a dynastic society and you end with a constitutional monarchy. That's the big thing. But, you know, in reality, I just wanted to have fun inventing silk punk machines and, and get people to fight dragons <laughs> and, and things like <laughs> Like that so so yeah. <laughs> all the high themes apart that the, the, the fun part is really what got me into writing it uh, I, as I think a lot of people know I mean you know if you're a novelist you know that the only reason you're writing a novel is because one you have something to say and two you want to have fun um, and I think that's basically the only good reasons to do anything it's true. yeah and I, I will say too we it's the end of Nearing the end of Pride Month, we're a queer podcast. I really loved that you had characters in your stories that were of different, uh, yeah, gender identities of different. Like there was polyamorous. There was yeah. I really enjoyed the representation that you had in your novels. It's not something that you, some people would jump to in a historical uh, base novel, but well, I mean, you know, the, the the reality is, I feel like people again have this sort of um, idea that the ancients did not experience the full range of human feelings or human expression or yeah. gender identity. I mean, you go back and read these old classics and you see, of course, people were talking about um, queer identities, what we would call queer identities, and and, and, and all these diverse ways of, of being human. Dating back to whatever era you want to go to, you will find everywhere evidence and, and, and writings by um, folks who did not fall into the narrow categories we seem to think um, everyone needs to go into. So it's not new. It's not, it's not like when you do this in a, in a historical setting, uh, fantasy novel or whatever, you're not really breaking any ground. You're really just doing what humans have always done and humans have always been <laughs> so i feel like you know this is this is what humans have always been and and, and done and and we really need to recognize that that's my feeling i love that. No, that that's great thank you so much thank you so much for joining us uh, i hope everyone enjoyed our conversation i hope you ha leave this conversation with a lot to add to your own world to think about in your D, &D worlds Faerun or otherwise how yeah you integrate technology into it all and i think this is great for anyone uh, as you were saying lily struggling with artificers especially because the artificial class has a lot of weapons it's armor artillerist blah blah it's like no you're a technology magic user if it doesn't work to you to have this more war 
engine maker than think of technology in a deeper term. And I think Artificer can really open up for a lot of people who struggled with them in the past in D&D. So yeah, uh, thank you so much, Ken, for talking to us. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a real, I love this conversation. It's um, it's so energizing and fun. Um, I, I guess that's the thing I want people to remember, you know, have fun <laughs> do, when, when you're doing the world building. That's really, it's really what this is all about. Your fun first. And the name of your novel, uh, the, the the final one, um, I've only the last, I haven't picked it up yet. So the, the the latest volume is called Speaking Bones. Speaking um, Bones. And it's the it's the conclusion to the Dandelion Dynasty. Perfect. Amazing. Yeah. Wonderful. Let's check that out. And yes, thank you so much. Hope you have a great rest of your day and Oh and congratulations on finishing your uh, book series. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lily, for joining me. Yeah. And blend us for the theme music around the fire. You can find them on Bandcamp. Links in the description of the episode. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And have a great long rest. Bye.